Well, welcome. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. As has been mentioned several times, we're starting uh, Advent, which actually, by the way, um, if you don't follow the Christian calendar, didn't grow up with the Christian calendar, the liturgical calendar, uh, this is actually the beginning of the Christian year. So happy new year. (laughs) One month before you maybe were expecting it. Um, But what I want to do, my name is Joel. I'm a executive pastor here. And I want to, I want to say a really quick intro to Advent first, um, before we get into the actual text in Malachi, which is what we're going to be studying through Advent. Um, so I'm just going to say a few, few words about Advent in general. Um, but I've come to, I've been in Maine for 11, almost 12 years now. Um, and I've come to love the very strong difference in seasons we experience in Maine. Um, I have a brother in LA, and like the beautiful, the weather there is amazing, but it's just the same, you know, all year. Um, there's somebody, somebody said for that, I know, yes. Yeah. Some people are like, yeah, what's the problem with that? Um, but I've come to love the difference in the seasons that we experience truly. And sometimes I feel like people are like, they just say that as a way to just like soften the blow of like how bad the winters are. Like, well, I love the difference of seasons, but like, I really do. I actually do love it. Um, each season, uh, it, it brings out, I'm sure some of you can relate to this, it brings out kind of a different emotion or a different experience, different kind of posture. Uh, in spring, there's this sense of like kind of hopefulness, kind of new, a new thing happening. In summer, there's this sense of joy, kind of like a partying atmosphere. Um, in fall, fall is actually my favorite. Uh, fall feels to me like a sense of contentment, just um, a, m- a bit more of a peaceful kind of content celebration spirit. And uh, I'm still working on what winter brings out, um, but there's something. Um, but I, my point is that there's some, I think there's something important about how these different seasonal shifts, um, they basically, they can bring out different aspects of the human experience, like just different emotions, different um, moods, different postures, uh, the full range of kind of humanity we can experience in, in, the, in a small way in these different season, seasonal changes. Um, and all this to say, I've come to feel similarly about the seasons in the church calendar. Um, we haven't done, like historically at Missio Day, we, haven't, we don't really emphasize the church calendar. We do Lent off and on. We do Advent off and on. Um, uh, but I really appreciate how, just like the different seasons in the weather, the different seasons in the church calendar can bring out different aspects of, a li- of the life of faith, um, different, yeah, different moods, um, different things to focus on. And Advent, as one of those seasons, uh, as has already been mentioned, Advent is a season that is traditionally focused on waiting and preparation. Waiting and preparation, those things go together. Um, Advent, for me, Advent helps me remember that there are things that I believe that only God can do, that I can't do, that only God can do, and therefore I need to uh, wait on God to do those things and prepare myself to receive those things that God does. So wait and prepare. Um, Things like, like I can't bring about God's kingdom myself. None of us can in our own power. And so we wait, in a sense, we wait on God to bring about the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom. Um, I can't renew my own heart. I can't renew your heart. We wait on God and the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, And I know the word waiting, the waiting has a sense of passivity to it. It's just like, I remember when John, I love John Mayer, and when that song Waiting on the World Change came out, um, everyone was like critical of it because it was like, well, you're just waiting around, waiting on things to change. And I get that. Um, But I think that's why the word preparation is important because we wait Waiting helps us recognize that there's things only God can do, but then in the meantime, we prepare for those things. Um, So it's not passive. Um, We're preparing to receive and to be aware and to notice God's 
work about setting all things right. Like he is going to restore the world, ultimately set everything right, bring about the new heavens and the new earth, ultimate renewal, ultimate restoration. Um, and we can't do that. We can't do that ourselves. Um, that's, incidentally, that's something that I think is profoundly wrong in um, a lot of cultural discourse right now in politics and stuff. Is this? We've A lot of people in our culture have tricked, have gotten tricked into thinking that we can bring about ultimate rest- restoration and renewal and justice ourselves. Um, this is really problematic. Um, but Christians believe, Christians believe that that ultimate restoration, the new heavens, the new earth, we, we believe that will all happen as we sang about, come that long expected Jesus. Uh, that will happen when Jesus returns. That's traditionally in Christian tradition referred to as the second coming. Um, and so that, that, all of that is what we are kind of cultivating an awareness of what we're waiting on in Advent. Um, and I really do, last thing I'll say about this before getting into Malachi, I really do believe, just like there's something significant that happens in fall versus summer versus spring, um, there's something significant that happens when you ad- intentionally adopt an appropriate posture of waiting and preparing in your spiritual life. Um, because if you're, if you're adopting a posture of waiting expectantly, of preparing yourself, um, you're just in a different place than when you're in a posture of celebrating or when you're in a posture of joy or when you're in a posture of grief or lament um, or in a posture of confession um, or just when you're super busy, <laughs> even when you're super busy. You know, like all these things are different postures and they kind of affect how you can, uh, how you think about things, how you receive things, what things that you miss. And so I think God, all of this is my, this is my big, like, I guess apologetic for Advent. Um, I do think God does something specific and important in us when we intentionally choose to wait on God, when we choose to prepare ourselves. Um, And that is what Advent ideally helps us to engage in. So we're going to study the short book with all this in mind. We're going to study the short book of Malachi for the next four weeks uh, up through Christmas for Advent. And the reason for choosing Malachi, Malachi is a bit of an obscure book. Um, I won't ask you for a show of hands of how many people even knew that Malachi was in the Bible. Um, uh, it's short, it's obscure, um, but the reason um, I wanted to study Malachi in particular is because it is, it's the last book in the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament as Christians. So it's, it was placed there because it's a prophetic word um, of looking forward to God's coming messenger and God's coming Messiah. So Malachi um, comes into the point in history when the Israelites were waiting for centuries for God's Messiah to appear, and Malachi was one of the prophets who spoke into that season of their life, that season of waiting. Um, and, uh, and that's why we picked it. So, um, so we're going to study for the next four weeks. Um, I would really encourage you to read it on your own. Um, even maybe after today, you can read the whole thing very quickly. It's only four chapters. Um, so I'd, I'd, yeah, I really encourage you to read it on your own um, as we're going through this together uh, for the next four weeks. So let me pray for us, then we'll get into Malachi. Um, Lord, I pray on behalf of our whole community that's gathered here this morning, I pray that... Um, we would take on a posture of waiting on you, but waiting expectantly and um, waiting, waiting not passively, but waiting because we believe that you are working and you're going to work. And so we want to cultivate an awareness of that. Um, so I pray that you do something new in us through this Advent season, uh, through the book of Malachi, through your prophet. Um, I pray that we would have hearts um, that are softened and ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. Um, pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, let, me, let me say just a tiny bit more about the context of Malachi. 
before I read any verses. Um, man, it's really hard to distill so much history. I love history. Um, but Malachi comes into the story of Israel after Israel has been through a lot, a lot that they've been through. Um, quick show of hands, or quick, uh, not show of hands, but popcorn. What, what are some things Israel has been through, if you know the history of Israel? What, what are some things Israel has been through up to this point of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament? Exile, that's a huge one. What else? Just things you think of. Captivity. Captivity. There's a huge one. Prince of Egypt. Moses. The Exodus. Yeah, big one. Um, the temp- they saw their temple get destroyed, right? So, I mean, think about this just for a second. Israel followed the, the, followed the call of Abraham. They, they literally became a nation. They went into captivity. They got rescued from captivity. They wandered the desert. And they found the promised land. They settled in the promised land. They actually saw a glorious temple get built, right, under Solomon. And then they saw pagan oppressors destroy the temple, carry them off into Babylon. And then they got back to the promised land and actually rebuilt the temple, um, which was not as glorious and wonderful as Solomon's, but they still rebuilt the temple. They were still in the land that they were promised, still under pagan oppressors. They've been through all, I mean, this is like American, I know, I think all of us are Americans in this room, I'm not sure. Uh, Well, my wife's Canadian, but she's upstairs. Um, So, we have, um, as Americans, we have like such a short history as a country. Such a short history. I mean, the, the Jewish people have been through centuries, millennia, it's really hard to wrap our minds around this. I mean, so much had happened to them as a people for so long. I mean, our, like, our history as a country is just like a blip compared to them. Um, and so they're back in the promised land. The temple's been rebuilt. The walls of Nehemiah about re- rebuilding the walls around the city, Jerusalem. Um, Malachi comes into the story after all of that. So all of that has happened. And at this stage of their life, as we'll see, their practices at the temple have gotten very lazy and very corrupted. So the temple's been destroyed and rebuilt. They've been exiled. They've come back. They're still practicing their religion, uh, honoring, uh, honoring God, as we'll see, maybe not so much. Um, but their practices have gotten super lazy, super corrupted. And Malachi is the one who's bringing all this to their attention. Malachi is the prophet who has very, very strong words for them in this stage of their life as a people. So like the good prophets do. Malachi is speaking on behalf of God to them. And so we're going to read just a few verses. Today is, um, I'm, I'm going to read a few verses from chapter one, and then uh, we'll end on a couple of verses from chapter two. Um, but Malachi is speaking to, to them. So this is kind of the perspective as you, as I read this thing about this is like, this is Malachi delivering the word of God to the Israelites. Malachi is saying to them, after this confrontation, they've responded um, about their corrupted religious practices. And Malachi, on behalf of God, says to them, you are saying, how have we despised your name? Like, they're, they're responding, like, what are you talking about, God? We haven't despised your name. And Malachi is saying, you say, you, how have we despised your name? Well, by offering polluted food on my altar. Again, this is God's perspective. And then you say, well, how have we polluted it? Well, you've polluted it by thinking that the Lord's table may be despised. So, the Israelites, this is this conversation between Malachi and God, and then the Israelite Jewish religious leadership. The Israelites in their practices at the temple, they've drifted, they've drifted so far 
not only, that not only are what they are doing is wrong and corrupt, and we'll get into a little bit more what that looks like, not only is it wrong and corrupt, but it's, they also don't even realize that it's wrong and corrupt. There's like two layers to it. Like they're, they're bringing corrupted sacrifices and they don't even see it. They don't even realize. Like this is how kind of blinded they've gotten to what's going on. So personally, just think about, I was, as I was studying this, I couldn't help but think about like, you can probably relate to this feeling about when you get confronted about something you're doing and you get like super defensive at least I do, maybe, I don't know, projecting. Uh, you get super defensive, especially when you don't even realize that what we were doing was so wrong or hurtful. <laughs> like someone, so particularly if, you are, if you're married and your spouse brings up something and you're like, you just don't want to acknowledge it, partly because you don't want to admit that you are so blinded that you didn't even realize you were doing it in the first place. Um, can anyone relate to that feeling? You don't have to show your hands up. Um, this is kind of what I was picturing emotionally is going on. It's like the religious leaders are like, we, don't even, we didn't even see what we were doing was wrong. And you're, you're bringing out, like you're dumping this all on us. Um, we, we would rather remain, in that situation, we'd rather remain in blissful ignorance, right? You'd rather remain, I just, I just don't even want to know. I don't want to be reminded, or I don't want to be told. What, what I had going felt pretty good, you know? Um, that's kind of what the Israelites, the situation they were in. What they had going felt pretty good. But the prophets, God's prophets throughout history, and, you know, people who have kind of prophetic giftings today, um, prophets are misunderstood as ones who just fore, foresee the future. That's, that's a very, like, small kind of slice of what, prophetic actually means. Um, but the prophets are the ones who confront and bring God's perspective, particularly when we get lazy or indifferent in our approach towards God and our spirituality and our, in our practices and our faith. The prophets are the ones who stir it up and confront us with what's wrong, um, especially when we'd rather remain comfortable and ignorant of what's wrong. So, so okay, what exactly, so this is the kind of the emotional, I don't know, uh, atmosphere that I was sitting in as I was studying this this week. But what actually is going on with these practices? Well, we get a little bit more detail here. This is kind of what, what is happening in the temple. So again, Malachi continues, when you offer blind animals in sacrifices, is that not wrong? Like blinded animals went to the temple. When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not wrong? Try presenting that to your governor. I love that line. Like try presenting that to your, like the person in charge of your city, you know? How will that go? Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? It's kind of like if you, if you can't imagine giving this to your political governor who sits right over there, like why are you okay giving it to God, the ruler of the heavens and the earth? Oh, and this line, I'll, I'll go back in a second. In response to this, God says through Malachi, oh, that someone among you would just shut the temple doors so you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. It's like, I'd rather the temple just stop than all of this keep going. That, that's a powerful image to me. So I want to talk a little bit about sac- this. The theme this morning, really, in terms of Advent and preparation, the theme is sacrifice. What does it mean to live sacrificially? Like, what does that actually mean? And why is that important? And how do we not slip into, like, a lazy legalism about sacrifice? That's kind of what I've been wrestling with this week. Well, Sacrifice for ancient Israel, it's really easy to misunderstand this because we're so culturally far removed from it. We look at this and we think, like, these are kind of, like, primitive practices, like bringing animals to get killed in a temple. Like, this just, like, feels gross to us, I think. Maybe it's just me. Um, we just have a really hard time relating to it. But I, remember, these are agrarian people. These are farmers, right? This is how they lived. And so the idea was you bring, you, you bring the best of your uh, produce, your product. You bring the best of it to give to God at the temple. Um, 
And so when they're bringing blinded, lame, sick animals, crops that are corrupted or rotten, um, it's as though they're bringing stuff that they have no use for otherwise. They can't eat it, probably couldn't sell it, right? Can't trade it. So we'll just, we'll just kind of drop it off at the temple, right? We'll pay lip service to this idea that we're sacrificing to God, but we're just kind of giving stuff that doesn't matter. And I could not, this is a really, really embarrassing anecdote. I really don't want to tell it, which means I probably should. Um, but uh, when I was in grad school, I had a mini fridge, like a little box mini fridge, and it stopped working. And so I brought it to Goodwill. Uh, shameful. Um, I just didn't know, I didn't know how to get rid of it. It was like, how do you get rid of a fridge? Um, I was in grad school, you know. That's kind of what was going on here. It's like, yeah, I can't, I can't use this thing anyway, so I'm just going to bring it to Goodwill. <laughs> right, so I, I feel, someone bought it. I feel terrible. Uh, at least they supported Goodwill, I guess, but man. Um, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, we can't, we, this stuff is useless to us. We're just going to take it to the temple. It's way worse than my example, actually, of Goodwill, because they were literally giving it to God. They were presenting it to God as though it was something of value. So, this, this whole thing, we, we shouldn't look at it with like this is primitive and backwards practices. We consider it, uh, consider it differently because what they're doing is subverting and distorting the entire, what the entire sacrificial system at the temple was supposed to be about. It's not as though God was petulantly demanding sacrifices out of a sense of ego or entitlement. I, hear, I heard that a lot, especially when I was doing college ministry, that people would be like, why would God demand that we worship him? Why would God demand sacrifices? That just so, seems so like egomaniacal. It's not about that. It's a common misunderstanding. It is about a regular practice of devoting things that are of value to God because God is worth the honor and the value that that practice establishes. After all, this is why I surveyed that history a minute ago. God is literally the reason they are a people in the first place. God is the reason the Israelites have land, have any national identity, have a temple, were rescued out of Egypt and then Babylon, like God is the reason they have any of this ability to even have the place to be, to sacrifice. That they have any name among the nations is due to God rescuing them. We should take on a similar mindset today. That we have any identity as a people, that we have any claim to being rescued at all is because of God. And so for them, this regular sacrifice was vitally, a vitally important way to keep that at the center of their identity as a people, at the center of their story, to remind themselves who they are and where they come from and who they owe that to, namely God. Sacrifice continually keeps that at the center and prepares, was preparing the Israelites to keep God at the center of their people identity um, and also as a safeguard against idolatry, right? So I, I think that all these same dynamics, even though we don't do anything remotely looking like this on the surface, all the same dynamics are in place for us today. Because don't, don't we believe on some level that ultimately all we have comes from God in the first place too? Right? Our, our very lives, the fact that you exist, the fact that you're going to take the next breath you're going to take, if that's how big out you want to zoom out. And then you can zoom into... To, any particulars in your life. Everything we have comes from God in the first place. So shouldn't we, like the Israelites, also regularly, regularly acknowledge this by practicing sacrifice to God? Again, not as a way to feed some sort of like God's ego or something, but to keep the source of everything we have at the center of our lives, to also safeguard ourselves against idolatry. Because I can tell you, we, I slip into idolatry when I don't practice sacrificial living. So I want to talk a little bit more about sacrifice. 
Have you ever, because that word is so religious, it can kind of get jargony, but have you ever sacrificed something, if you have kids, have you ever sacrificed something for your kids? <laughs> yes. Sleep, money, emotional wellness. <laughs> Maybe I'm projecting again. Um, freedoms, yeah. Things you'd rather be doing otherwise with your time. Or maybe if you don't have kids, uh, have you ever sacrificed something for a hobby or for an educational pursuit, a career pursuit? Have you ever set something aside that you would rather not set aside for a kind of bigger picture? It could be your finances. It could be, again, your personal comfort. Maybe you've sacrificed a relationship for something else. So on some level, even if you wouldn't be able to articulate it in the moment, I think that we always are practicing sacrifice because we believe that something about these sacrifices are, are worth it ultimately, on an ultimate level. Our kids developing into healthy people, uh, being able to say you ran that marathon or wrote that book, being able to progress in your vocation, to just even develop yourself, you know, a skill that you have. I don't know, there's a million examples. We believe on some level that the pursuit of all that stuff is worth the sacrifices it takes to get there. And so while those all might be very worthwhile things, How much do they pale in comparison to a relationship with a living God who gave you the ability to celebrate all of those things in the first place, right? And the practice of sacrifice helps us remember this by regularly placing God back in the center, by prioritizing God, by bringing us back to a, uh, to a posture of gratitude, of awareness, thankfulness. It's crucial. And I get, man, when we talk about things like sacrifice, you talk about something like this that focuses on doing and actions. Um, I'm very sensitive, I want to be sensitive to the fact that everyone hears that differently because everyone in this room is in a very different place when it comes to something like sacrifice. If you hear me stand up here and say, you need to sacrifice more, <laughs> I know everyone's going to receive that differently. So I, where I'm at right now in delivering this is this is what I feel convicted to say about this text to us in this Advent season. Um, but I want to speak really carefully, and I want to trust the Holy Spirit to mediate this amongst us, to help us all work out what does this mean for us. So I'd encourage you to work this out in your family or your triad or community group. What, is this, what does it mean to be sacrificial? But let me give some examples. Some of you might be pulled in response to Malachi in Advent. Some of you might be pulled to take on more sacrifice in your life right now. So in that case, what might it look like to sacrifice time or energy or finances or resources could be as simple as waking up earlier than you'd otherwise prefer to devote to sacrifice and devote some of that early morning time to prayer. That's a really that's a possible thing. Uh, it could be sacrificing something you'd rather buy for yourself, especially with getting them to Christmas, or even buying for I don't know your spouse or something. Um, it could be sacrificing that thing in order to ensure that someone else is blessed. It could be choosing one less extracurricular activity for your child, even if that is a sacrifice on their resume or whatever, so that your family can have that dinner together every week. It could be something like that. It might be an addition. For others, a sacrifice might look like ceasing or stopping doing something, something that's crowding out the centrality of God in your life. Social media is almost a too obvious example for this, right? Netflix, whatever. Or, or activities you're engaging in just to accrue approval from other people? Is there something you need to see? You might be being called to cease or stop. Shut the temple doors, right? Don't do this. 
But there's another category, and this one is also important to me, because others of you might hear something like this, and you might be thinking, like, this is all great, but I just can't adjust anything in my life right now. (laughs) I'm especially thinking about those, again, with very little kids. Like, I get it. If that's you, if you are just like at capacity, if you are, if you feel like, if you, if you are sitting here and you feel like I am already living sacrificially, perhaps the invitation for you is to know that the current sacrificial living you are engaging in is honoring to God. And you don't need to feel pressure to change anything. Maybe God is reminding you that living in sacrifice is where life actually is found, even though everything in our culture tells us otherwise. Maybe the call to you is to be aware of his presence in the midst of how you are already sacrificially living. A fantastic book on this, by the way, is The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Um, If if you want to read something easy and life-giving to read right now, uh, she talks about how do you recognize God's presence when you've lost your keys and you're frustrated in the morning. (laughs) Right, there's a chapter on that. There's a chapter on how do you recognize God's presence when you're stuck in traffic. I would highly recommend that book. But, What I want to say, though, so whether you need to add something or cease doing something or just recognize God in what you're already sacrificing, the particulars of all that, they're not as important as the why. The why is the practice of regularly and continually centering God as the source of all we have now, all we can be thankful for, and all we can hope for, right? Keep God at the center, and the best way to do that is to sacrifice, to be continually preparing to receive God's work and God's presence in our world. So I want to end on what's the good news in all this? And the good news shows up. Malachi is kind of a bleak book, actually, if you read it. Um, There's a lot, especially the first half. It's because there's a lot of this confronting bad religion. But good news pops up in really surprising places, and it hit me in chapter 2. Listen to this. Know then, again, from God's perspective, know then that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may hold says the Lord of hosts. I love this phrase. My covenant with him was a covenant of life and well-being. Life and well-being, which I gave him. So God here is concerned. God has given this, this directive because he's concerned that the covenant not fall apart. God does not want this project of bringing life and restoration to the world to get derailed by, um, by this corrupted religion at the temple. There's a whole, I mean, I, I didn't have time, I wanted to go into this, I didn't have time to, but there's a whole layer to this that's about the witness to the nations too, because the nations are looking at Israel bring lime and blamed and rotten sacrifices to their God at the temple. Like, what is that saying about what they think about their God to the rest of the world, right? So there's a whole element of witness, which maybe would be a whole second sermon. Um, but God is concerned, underneath all of this, God is concerned and is giving these warnings because he wants the covenant of life and restoration and the project to stay on track for the blessing of the whole world. This is profoundly rooted in love and, and desiring for good for us. This is not, again, not a petulant God, not an angry, like, te- throwing a temper tantrum God. This is a God of love who is fiercely devoted to that loving project of bringing us back. Think of a parent delivering a harsh warning to a beloved child in the spirit of keeping that child in in their sphere, in their care. God does not want Israel to derail this project of bringing blessing to the whole world. This is a crucial frame for this, and this is what we're going to, I wanted to think about this as we turn to communion in a minute. Because this practice of religious sacrifice is all taking place, again, within God's loving intention. 
and this covenant, which again, God initiated. That's an important aspect of the story of Israel. God initiated the whole thing, which eventually results in our salvation. God initiated. And this covenant that God desired to hold, this covenant of life, this covenant of well-being, was ultimately opened up to us in this room by the cross, which when we're thinking about sacrifice and we're talking about our sacrificing for God, the cross is God's willingness to sacrifice to keep this covenant for us. God is not commanding the Israelites or us by extension to do something God is not willing to do. God sacrificed in a way that probably none of us will, well, definitely none of us will be able to really wrap our mind around what the cross what that, what, what that sacrifice on the cross really means. So as we transition into communion, I want us to take that as an opportunity to consider what God sacrificed, what God embodied in Christ, the incarnation of Christ, which we're celebrating and looking forward to in Advent specifically, the incarnation of God in Christ walking towards a cross It's not as though God set up these rules and then sat back and just scolded us when we didn't keep the rules. God set up the rules out of an intention for us to have life and then God engaged at ultimate cost to God's own self to keep this all on track. So when we think about sacrifice in this Advent season, first of all, we sacrifice to a God that is very willing to sacrifice for us. And secondly, our sacrifices can, I believe, then be willingly offered in response to God's own outpouring. Again, all we have comes from God in the first place, and therefore any sacrifice we give back to God is, was already God's. What's that phrase from C.S. Lewis? Sixpence, you know, sixpence none the richer. The child who gives the sixpence, goes, goes and buys a sixpence their parent gave them and buys something for the parent and gives it to them. The parent is sixpence none the richer, but they're still loved in the act. God, our sacrifices can be willingly offered in response to God's outpouring and God's own love and sacrifice. Embodied powerfully on the cross and then vindicated three days later when, when Jesus walked out of the tomb. And celebrating communion every single week, and I'll, um, maybe if one person from the LT can come up and, or maybe two people can come up and prepare to hand out the, um, Danny maybe and uh, Sarah, yeah. Um, start handing out the elements. As we turn to communion, um, this is a way um, we, every week we engage in this act that can remind us of what God did, but it can also, it can also shape us. It shapes us, I think, as we keep engaging in it. Remember, thank you, yeah. Remembering this truth, remembering this foundation um, of what we believe about God. So um, as Danny and Sarah come around, um, I'm going to read a short text to prepare us for communion. Um, wait until, you, yeah, you can open up the top, um, but wait until I uh, guide us through to actually eat and drink so that we can do it all together. But again, this act, the, the, the wafer and the juice symbolize the body, the broken body, the broken flesh and the spilled blood of Christ. Again, God's, God's act towards us in history And we do it just as Christ commanded us to do it, but also as Christ celebrated this 
with his own disciples on the last uh, night of his life. And so in Luke, I'm going to read this and then tell you when to, to um, take. In Luke 22, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Amen. Um, Take and eat and drink. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Lord, we invite you to come this Advent season. Prepare our hearts to receive what you would do amongst us. I pray that you would do something new. Thank you for your prophet Malachi. Thank you for these words about sacrifice and honoring your name. Um, Lord, I pray that we as a community would endeavor to discern how you would have us sacrifice, discern how you would have us honor your name and your kingdom in that way. Bring comfort to us in this Advent season, Lord, and stir us up to, to new action, but also stir us up to deeper love for you. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.